Avengers, Age of Ultron is garbage, folks. Is it an alligator or a crocodile? I don't know the difference, and at this point, I'm too afraid to ask. Look at that. That is a werewolf. <laughs> Cross the rainbow bridge of Asgard, where the booming heavens roar. You'll behold in breathless wonder. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Denny Geek Presents Marvel Standing Live, where each week we give you the deepest possible dives on all the goings on in the MCU, Marvel Comics, and beyond. And it is a big one for us today as we're diving into Thor, Love and Thunder. With me for all time and always, we have Den of Geek News and Features Editor Kirsten Howard. And we got Two guests this week, returning guests, pop culture columnist, Denna Geek fave, Joe George, and special guest, graphic policy radio host, Ilana Levin. Welcome, Ilana. Welcome, George. Welcome, George. Welcome, Joe. We, <laughs> we answered it both. Joe's it's cool. <laughs> Here we go. Like, I'm wasting no time in screwing <laughs> stuff up this week. How's everybody doing? Good. Good. I'm so excited to be on this. It's good to have you. And I just want to thank our producer, uh, Andrew Halley, for accommodating my demand, my last minute demand, to include the original Thor animated series intro from 1966. And he, uh, he made it a pretty smooth transition as well. So uh, anyway, yep, there's Andrew. He's right there for us. Uh, Thor, Love and Thunder, fantastic debut at the box office. I believe it was the fifth biggest MCU opening ever. Uh, had kind of a mixed critical reception, but that box office kind of belies the fact that audiences still love it and they're here for the good vibes that uh, Taika Waititi and company are bringing to the table. Uh, but why don't we start, Kirsty? Tell us all about the craziness of Thor Love and Thunder. Well, this is the longest one ever, Mike, so please bear with me. <laughs> There's so much happened in this movie that it was hard to sort of narrow it down to the the big points, but I'll do my best. In Thor Love and Thunder, Thor seeks peace after the devastating events of Avengers Affinity War and Endgame. Having embarked on some cosmic adventures with the Guardians of the Galaxy that are now losing their luster, Thor parts ways with Marvel's a-holes when he learns that the insidious Gore the God Butcher has been, well, butchering gods. As Korg and Thor, along with a pair of screaming goats, hunt down Gore, Thor runs into old flame Jane Foster, who has stage four cancer and who can now transform into Thor, thanks to an off-handed chat with Mjolnir years ago where Thor asked Mjolnir to protect her no matter what. Jane and Thor still have feelings and they only really broke up because they were both terrified of how much they loved each other, but when they team up with King Valkyrie to kill Gore after he abducts the children of New Asgard, they find out that Gore is seeking Eternity, who will grant one wish to whoever finds them. The group ask the gods for help, but are rejected by their leader Zeus, and the Thors, Valkyrie and Korg attack Zeus and steal his lightning bolt, leaving Zeus badly hurt and the gods aghast. After a fierce battle with the Thors, Gore gets ready to make his wish and make all gods extinct, but when Thor, who is tending to a dying Jane, talks to him about love and his dead daughter, Gore decides to wish for her to be brought back from the dead. As Jane and Gore die, Thor agrees to take care of Gore's daughter, Love, and we see the two of them living and fighting together in the future. In a post credit scene, we also see a wounded Zeus order his son Hercules to strike fear into the hearts of those who once worshipped the gods and now consider them surplus to requirements. So nothing really happened in this movie, no. basically, is what you're saying. Hardly yeah, there's not, not a lot of plot or anything. But mm. look, we're going to dive into all of that in just a second. But first, you should all know that this episode of Marvel Standom is brought to you by Bob Streaming Club. Do you ever find yourself a little overwhelmed by the number of streaming choices out there? I sure do. Find yourself paying for monthly streaming subscriptions to services you don't always use? Well, there is a better way, folks. 
Let the good people at Bob curate your streaming experience for you. One low monthly flat fee gets you access to three fresh streaming services every month curated by the experts at Bob. They'll keep track of all the big releases and pick the services with the biggest releases that month so you get the most out of every channel. Get your perfect slice of streaming with Bob Streaming Club. Head over to bobstreamingclub.com to learn more. Ilana, you're a big Jack Kirby fan. I know you said Ragnarok is one of your favorites of all time. Why don't you uh, Why don't you start us off this week? You know, it's it's an interesting moment for me because I, like I said, Thor 3 is on like a personal level, a movie that resonated with me and had so many moments where I felt like they made this for me. I'm massively obsessed with our flag means death. So I, I came into watching number four with a really, really, really high expectations. And I enjoyed the movie, but it wasn't the same kind of just serious, deep emotional connection that I've had with a number of works that he's done recently. So, you know, I'm trying to not look at it through the lens of, is it as good as these things that connected to you deeply? And I enjoyed it. So I would tell people that they might go and enjoy the movie. Um, but I do feel a little bit sad that it didn't live up to the other works that I just felt like had such a real deep connection to. Um, and it's interesting, though, because I was so excited and am so excited to see this movie introducing Guns N' Roses to a young generation of people, one of my absolute favorite bands. Somewhere in the hall back there is my cat, Axl Rose, who was not invited on camera because he would not sit still for it. Um, uh, so that that cultural impact is certainly really exciting for me, for sure, though. Joe, how about you? Where'd you fall on the Thor Love and Thunder scale? I think that's above average. I did not enjoy the first half 30 minutes at all. In fact, in my notes, like 15 minutes in, I wrote down, this feels like an Old Spice commercial. And then it actually becomes an Old Spice commercial, <laughs> like literally on screen. By that point, I was a little bit tired of YTD's humor. I mean, I'm mostly I'm, I'm up on him, but it was just a little too slight. And then by the time we get halfway through, by the time we get to the scene where he super powered all of the children and they're all fighting back and the music's kicking in, I was grinning like an idiot and I was on board. But it's it's a very uneven and I think intentionally slight movie that's adapting fairly heavy <laughs> source material. And once you kind of get over that, I think it's pretty enjoyable. Now, Kirsty, I know that you have been probably the most unabashed defender of this movie so far. Why don't you uh, why don't you bring the vibe up for everybody here? Well, what can I say really? I mean, you know, Ragnarok is a lot of people's favorite MCU movie. That's true. It's my second favorite behind Infinity War, uh, but I love Ragnarok and I wasn't honestly sure what to expect from this one. Um, as I think I've mentioned a couple of times now, we're in difficult second album territory. And what happens with difficult second album territory is a lot of people love it and are like, I love this direction. I don't mind that it's missing X, Y, and Z for vibes from the first one. This is fine. Um, and a lot of people are like, where are the bits that I loved about this band? And so for me, I loved it. I really enjoyed it from beginning to end. I didn't have, I mean, I was just entertained really. Um, I, I laughed at probably 90% of the jokes. I didn't feel like the sadder bits suffered for me. I was, I was able to, you know, they were impactful enough for me to cry. So I will cry at like, you know, a commercial on TV. So that's probably not, you know, a good, you know judge but um yeah i had a great time i mean i've actually written a list sorry i've prepared a list today of um the things that i loved about this movie um and i will i will get into it those mad owl creatures at the start with the sort of jim hensony design i can't stop thinking about them i thought they were incredible um, Thor's John Cole Van Damme splits between these are all jokes that work for me mainly. <laughs> um, the Stormbreaker and Mjolnir jealousy arc, where St yeah. Stormbreaker was just sort of hover into frame, like it got me every time. You'd think I'd be uh, sick of those goats after a while, but I wasn't. Um, <laughs> I just didn't get sick of them, especially when they smashed into whatever that kind of uh, was it a moon in the Shadow Realm when they just. Everything was really epic and they just kind of collided into the side of it. That ended me. 
Love the low-key midlife crisis tattoo. I think we'd seen it in a trailer briefly before, uh, but this time we got to see that the side that there was a little list of names next to the horns, and some like Tony and Natasha were listed on there. And then next to Loki's name, there was a question mark. So it was little <laughs> jokes like that, like maybe hadn't, even though he'd got this huge like back piece, he hadn't quite accepted that Loki was gone. Um, Bao got a buns, you know, I think that's probably a moment in the movie that pushed people too far. Like they, they were like, that's just too ridiculous. But um, I enjoyed it. And I think, yeah. Lana loved it. Yeah, so that was fun go. too. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it, I, I, a lot, so many fans have spoken, like when I, I've been like really trying to find Maori nerd voices talking about the movie, like how happy they were to see Maori deities in that scene and see this wider mythology. And I had this moment of feeling, are people going to be upset that they also have ridiculous ones? And the answer is no, so far nobody I've seen is like, this somehow feels invalidating or weird to me. But I certainly enjoyed The Dumpling God. It's so cute. I, what yeah. is <laughs> I also another thing that struck me was the subversion of the expectation uh, that post Endgame that Star Lord and Thor were going to be dick swinging in some way, uh, you know, when they ha after they teamed up. But here, it just seemed like they'd become friends, and Star Lord had been quite supportive towards him, and I really liked that sort of turn. Um, yeah, there was there was lots of love, and then you've got the post credit scene. Obviously, we're heavily into spoilers now, but Brett Goldstein, you know, he's amazing. I love Ted Lasso. Like, I I don't watch football, but I really love it when men go to therapy. So that's my jam. <laughs> um, yeah, hope to see him in the MCU, and uh, looking forward to. I had no interest in Hercules before this, but Brett Hercules, yeah, of course I'm on board. Hercules is by in the comics, and I have no clue whether or not that would even vaguely be allowed in the show. He's also by in mythology. Like, this is not something that people, if you read Greek mythology, lots of queer people. And I don't know that I trust that that would actually be something carried over into the show, given how much we're like barely able to see acknowledgement of the canonically queer characters like Valkyrie and this having had, you know, her relationship is past, it's off screen. And like the whole conversation that, um, Korg has about where babies come from on his planet and you know he has two dads and it's really cute and sweet but like you have at the end he, he meets um, a wonderful mustached uh, <laughs> member of his species and they, they reproduce by handshake and it's I, I'm watching it and I'm laughing because it also reminds me of that like moment from with um with uh, Schwarzenegger actually the Schwarzenegger and I'm forgetting the other yes <laughs> right and I, I'm resonating with it and then later I'm like that kind of was very literally taking the sex out of the question of like homosexuality. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I have no, I, and I did not have like, yeah, I was named Dwayne. So it's also with a rock ref. I mean, it's the rock, he's rocks, whatever. It was funny. But like, I, I have, when I saw, when I seen Hercules and like wanting to think that there's going to be this like canonically queer character who will be acknowledged as such in a movie. And I'm like, all of this stuff is completely editable out and it feels a little bit cheap. I don't hold Taika Waititi accountable for what, you know, corporate is doing. I do wish that the press tour hadn't been quite so like, everything about this is queer. Cause I'm, it, it's, it's not. But um, it's you, you definitely feel the sense of like people are struggling against the limitations of what they're being allowed to show and talk about still in 2022. It's a, yeah. it's a Disney release. They've got to, it's got to be something they can easily edit out for China, you know, and other markets where, you know, that might, you know, <clears throat> incorrectly find this stuff object, obje objectionable, you know, not to mention the fact that like Disney's a lot of big talk about these issues. <clears throat> but we haven't really seen them deliver in a big way. So somebody asked about Cork talking about his mom and his mom's boyfriend. I think Cork has a, has a wide variety of parents. Like we don't really know what their social structure is for these people. Um, so I, I didn't really view that as like any kind of switch in the canon really. Exactly, Cronin family structure works differently. We don't want to essentialize how different, you know, species and are gonna organize <laughs> And you know, Marvel is all about the complex fan fa found family. And like, you, you know, Thor ends the movie with a kid who's like not his biological kid, but he's gonna raise her and that's like very real and legitimate. I, I think that some of the best stuff the movie did was work with children, which of course is a hallmark of Taika Waititi's films is doing a wonderful job with kids. Um, and one of 
I, I love that in this film, he's they're going around and they're asking the gods, like, are you going to help fight against evil? And the gods are like, no, we're not going to. But OK, fine. So we're going to empower small children and small children are going to take care of each other. And that is like the moment that enables people to be free. And it's so much of this movie is about like nobody's coming to rescue you necessarily, um, which I think is an important message for people to consider. Um, uh, and then empowering the kids, uh, I, I, young Axel, Heimdall's son, um, so wonder, such a wonderful way to keep that bit of continuity together. And I love the character sort of asserting his identity and name, being like, "I'm Axel because I'm an Axel. Ro I'm a fan of Axel Rose." And they're like, "But your family and history." And then they're like, "You know what? We're going to let you choose your name." And I've seen I've seen a lot of fans, like you know, talking about like this sort of pressure between your like when people try to give themselves names as part. Is it assimilationist? You know, Taika Waititi used to be Taika Cohen and then switched his last name back to Waititi. He's one of his parents is Cohen and one is Waititi. And, you know, you hold multiple identities, right? And you have all these Asgardians who were living in space and are now on earth and sort of reconciling their identities. Um, and it feels really real that a kid would decide that they want to give themselves an earth name after, you know, a rock star who they love and identify with, but that adults might feel a little bit like, but what about your ethnic heritage? Like, this is all stuff that's very real. And yeah, that actor, that kid was really, was really great. I enjoyed him a lot. The, the both of you have successfully found threads in this movie that I didn't necessarily pick up on the first time, because my big complaint with it was that I felt Joe used the word slight. And that is a word that has come to mind a few times, especially compared to Ragnarok, which, you know, had themes about like colonialism and, and things like that. But clearly there's stuff that maybe I just didn't pick up on in my viewing. And that's totally fine. And I've I've suspected, even though I've been kind of middle of the road on this movie from, you know, like I saw it at a press screening two weeks ago, and it hasn't really stuck with me in any major way. But on the other hand, there hasn't been a lot for me to really attack about it either. You know, a lot of times with Marvel movies, look, I love the MCU, but there's a definite MCU effect that happens when you see one of these movies for the first time and you have a great time while you're watching it and you walk out of there feeling good. But then like you think about them over time and a lot of them kind of fall apart under scrutiny. You know, I haven't had that problem with Love and Thunder yet, in part, though, because there just didn't seem to be quite as much to hang on to the first time, but that might just be me as a viewer, you know? And I'm also, I'm very curious about how many folks, and this goes for everybody in the chat as well, how many folks have read the Jason Aaron comics that this movie is very loosely based on? And I, I try so hard not to be the comic book guy about this stuff, because I've said it a hundred times on this show, most of the time, when Marvel adapts something and they make big changes, those changes are for the better in a lot of cases, or at least they make sense for presenting them to a, like a wider audience. In the case of Captain America Civil War, it's just better than the, the source material because the source material is crap to begin with, right? But like- yes. <laughs> Same with, with Age of Ultron, Mike. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like, like, well, I don't know about that. Because Same Age with Ultron Age of just, Ultron. You know, Carry on. Yeah. Um, but like, not true of, uh, yeah, not, but, but, not true of infinity but, gauntlet, but keep going. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's fine. Like now yeah, that's fair. That's a f absolutely fair point. But like, usually I don't complain, you know, it's not something like, oh, well, they didn't do it like the comics, but these particular comics are some of the best Thor comics of all time. I mean, I put this run up there. It's, you know, behind only Jack Kirby and Walt Simonson, as far as I'm concerned. And you know, it's basically like two 25 issue arcs or something. The first part is gore. And then the second part is Jane and everything about this. I mean, I, I really, everybody who has any interest in comics at all, who wants to dive deeper on this story, whether you loved this movie or you didn't, if you haven't read this run, you really, really should. It is an absolute treat. It is so much fun. And there's like nothing because it's so different from what we got on screen. There's nothing you're missing. You know what I mean? It's not like, like it's it's not like you're you're like, well, I know what's coming because you really don't. They made such big changes to this, um, but I do fear that this colored my perception of the movie a little bit because this isn't just some comic run. It's like the third best Thor comic run I've ever read. 
it's the kind of story that could support a whole trilogy of movies and especially the first part the gore stuff i don't know if taika was the right filmmaker for it however it is a pretty awesome gore that we got on screen but we'll get to that later in the show we have some fun thoughts from our uh from den geek readers and viewers we asked everybody over the weekend for their one sentence reviews of thor love and thunder kirsty do you want to take us through some of these sure yeah so these are some comments we've had via social media from people who saw the movie um john clemency said thor love and thunder is poorly paced with a nonsensical plot and horribly inconsistent tone but the likable cast still makes it somewhat enjoyable somewhat enjoyable hashtag more gore alexis said hilarious almost giddy energy and highly entertaining pete h126 said it was a total letdown meanwhile brainy goat said tonally inconsistent but a fun time at the movies uh, Snap Happy Bear called it Monty Python's Life of Thor, which I can I can see where he's coming from. Um, Kevin Don't Dance said funniest comic book movie ever on purpose. So it was real mix. I think you know people were were mixed on this one. I think if if you hated the comedy in in the first one, you you definitely hated this one. Like it was a lot. <laughs> of Taika Waititi but I, I loved the comedy in the first one and so I was quite happy to watch a straight up comedy in the MCU I don't have a problem with that there were I I, th- I have heard a lot of um, valid points and criticisms about the movie including all of your own so I, I take those on board and um, I can appreciate them but I probably have a lower tolerance (laughs) lower tolerance yeah um if something's making me laugh i probably don't think about it too much and that's me watching a movie i mean like the humor definitely worked for me in general the the exception was like i just i'm really tired of fat jokes and think that they're not adding anything and i was hoping that it wouldn't emerge in this one and yet it did it was like but we had a conversation around this already about why this wasn't cool and then you did it again guys no like it's not even funny or helpful or necessary or any of those things um but like and it's just so much of the humor is a very kind humor and then to have that kind of sticks out but i know when some of the people were talking about tonal inconsistency it didn't bother me to have humor and then be dealing with jane's you know cancer because like that is sort of what's happening here, right? Is she's trying to not focus on her medical situation by dealing with putting herself in a situation where she can feel strong and empowered and in charge of her life. And like, there's going to be a gap in how you're gonna talk or feel about yourself in those two different things. It, it, it didn't, I think it's actually impressive that the, the tonal shifts really didn't, didn't bother me at all. And I thought she did a great, I thought she did a great job of portraying both aspects of what the character was going through. One thing I've seen regarding the humor in this movie, and I think this ties into some stuff we should talk about, just about Thor's overall arc in the MCU. You know, because let's face it, Thor has had the most unconventional heroic arc of like any of the mainstay, you know, any of like the big three, basically, of of Cap, Iron Man, and Thor. Thor's journey has been the longest and the strangest. And some folks are complaining particularly in this movie that we've gone from like kind of laughing with Thor to like to laughing at him. I'm curious how everybody feels about that balance, because I do think where Thor ends up in this movie is like perfectly valid and it makes a lot of sense in, in, in the scope of everything. Um, but like Don Kay, who writes for Den Geek, wrote, wrote an interesting article and he is much more down on this movie than anybody on this show today. Uh, but what Don says is that the character has never been better than he was in Infinity War, which was like the perfect balance between a character you can kind of laugh with and like accept the ridiculousness of, but that there are also like, there's also like serious depth to. And with Infinity War, that is the beginning. Like, well, Ragnarok is the beginning of like good Thor in the MCU. But like Infinity War is like the beginning of like really interesting Thor. That's where the whole midlife crisis arc starts coming in. So how does everybody feel about Thor's arc overall? And how does this this fit in with the, you know, 
again, the overall discourse about the, the wildly different tones of this movie. I overall really like his his arc. I like I like the divergences that they've taken to the comics. You know, I I, I like this more fun adventure version of Thor. It tracks for me how he's developed. But I do agree with uh, the criticism that sometimes we're asked to laugh at him a little bit too much and at his world. You know, one of the big problems I ran into early with this movie is when Korg's doing the voiceover uh, uh, explaining everything that's happened to Thor. And he gets to the Warriors three and he just says, and whoever those guys were, <laughs> you know, and, and there's that sense of this stuff's all dumb, right? We all agree that this stuff is dumb and this stuff is ridiculous and it is silly and it is over the top and that's totally fine to have fun with that but as soon as you start getting to this stuff is dumb and we, we all agree that it's ridiculous you know it's silly and laughable then i think that's we're on the wrong side of that equation you should absolutely have fun with a superhero who rides a rainbow bridge and has the sprightly color costume it should be uh, funny and and we should have a good time with that but you also shouldn't be thumbing your noses at those of us that are that are trying to enjoy it and i'm not saying i want like a Zack snyder worshipful of all of the characters and that's the only thing you can do but i don't know man don't don't ask us to laugh at the things that we love or from from a mean perspective i, I really hear what you're saying I, I had read it as a good way for the movie to remind people of the past stories without feeling like exposition dumb. Um, but I totally see what you're saying. I really like the comment from Imagine Wizard in the in the stream chat. <laughs> Hello, Imagine Wizard. The theme Ilana is signposting is explicitly stated when Matt Damon even says about creating the play about the kidnapping to distract these guardians from their trauma. I think the dramedy mix lands less well here than Ragnarok, but it doesn't do it bad. That's, yeah, I, can, I can get behind that. I can get behind all of that. So you know what, you've kind of la accidentally landed on a bit of a point for me, is that I did notice there was a correlation between the way Thor and Jane's characters were drawn here in a way that we haven't um, explored before in the MCU, is that they will both avoid um, thinking about their trauma and brush it off and use jokes to get past it and bluster. Um, and I wonder whether <laughs> this film for me felt like a bit of that generally as well. Like there's, there's so much darkness in the world and maybe this movie is just like, I would, is there any way we can turn all this into like happiness and jokes and love and I don't know there's just a there's a weird there's a weird theme to it um I'm not quite sure I've grappled with it yet but um I'm certainly noticing things about these characters and the plot of this film as we're talking it's definitely a I mean I'm not trying to make a pun here it's a worthy theme but <laughs> on both you know the 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 whole Jane dealing with death and cancer and her body uh, doing this to her and with Gore's crisis of faith in a major comic book way I don't feel like the movie that we have on screen and it's clear that this, this thing was edited to death and so maybe all of that stuff is elsewhere but the movie that we got on screen I don't feel like was really interested in dealing with that and and, and I don't need it to be like again it is a superhero movie and at the end of the day at the baseline thing that a superhero movie needs to do is give us cool superheroes that's my there's my screw the rules line for this episode like that's all it needs to do it can do more and as mike said the jason aaron run absolutely does more but i don't need it to be so i'm not upset that it's for me not really dealing with these giant questions that it's kind of glancing at but i but it's also not there <laughs> and 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 i can't give it credit at least for me as a viewer i can't give it credit for grappling with these big ideas when i feel like it's gesturing to them in order to get on to the next cool set piece which again fine but that's all i feel like it's doing speaking of cool set pieces though can we talk about how good the art direction was because it was very good like it's it, 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 they actually are thinking about it it has a look and style the different settings of their own aesthetics I, it was really pretty, you know, um, 
and a part of that was I, you know, Eternity is one of from the Mar, you know, from the comics is one of the most striking visuals that they've ever created. And if you had told me like there's going to be Eternity in a Marvel movie, I would have probably expected it to look heinous and modern. Um, but actually, it really draws really strongly from the original art from Ditko and Gene Colan and like all those folks, and it was really striking. Um, you know, I I don't really care one way or the other about like characterization of Eternity's powers and being different. The point is that we got to look at this gorgeous being with that face floating around through the cosmos and the wonderful Kirby hat, as it were, um, and that was all captured because people understood that comics are beautiful and we want to interpret them and not just completely invent really kind of bland, boring aesthetics for the movies that happen sometimes. This is why I will forgive a lot of sins for this movie, like because of its willingness to embrace the source material in, in like in explicitly visual ways. I mean, like these are still, I mean, as a whole, the, the Marvel cinematic universe has moved towards a more, a wider color palette since Ragnarok. And I think Ragnarok was a big part of that influence. You know, like that was the first Marvel movie to look like it really wanted to feel like it was inspired by the comics. I mean, there's Jack Kirby and Walt Simons and stuff all over Ragnarok. And here, while some of those influences are less overt, it does feel very much like they just want it to be as beautiful and intricate and colorful as comics can be. You know, even though even though it's not quite as devoted to particular elements of the source material. Now we're showing images from Omnipotent City here, here, which to me looks like how George Perez always rendered uh, Olympus, particularly in the Wonder Woman comics. So, um, yeah. So there's there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's clear. Look, Taika clearly has a wonderful appreciation for this stuff, and it filtered into other elements of the movie. So. Sometimes that's what I want out of this, you know, and and Thor Love and Thunder is definitely an example of how you can present stuff in a way that feels like a comic without like kind of I don't know what the right word is, but like constantly over signifying the fact that it loves comics. Although I do wonder, is some of the problem that Thor is having with this mixed response? Like, are we bumping up against the age old question with the MCU and its sprawling nature and its self-referentiality now? I have to imagine this movie is completely incomprehensible if at minimum you haven't seen Ragnarok Infinity War and Endgame, you know, if not, you know, if not Dark World and the original Thor, just to get a sense of Thor and Jane's relationship. Not to mention the fact that the guardians are just kind of like in this movie, um, which makes sense from a, this follows on from Endgame standpoint, but from really from a narrative standpoint, doesn't make any sense. And I'm starting to think that nobody except James Gunn should be allowed anywhere near these characters. Cause I did find their scenes like really grating. Am I alone in this? Did anybody else feel like this? I mean, we're not a good test audience for whether or not people who aren't enmeshed in MCU will understand it. But I actually think, other than the Guardian stuff, which would have been completely incomprehensible, and I do think you might be right about James Gunn just being the only person who gets them right. I think other than the Guardian stuff, I don't think you need to have been super on top of all of the stuff from the MCU because of the, all, the Korg narration really does cover a lot of things to play within a play. They love doing the play within the play, and they did that really well. And like the weight of Thor's historical narrative here, like it isn't so, so central and important anyway to the sense of he's sad that he had a breakup with someone who was meaningful to him and he doesn't really know what's next for him. I think it might actually, I doubt anybody's gonna just see it as a standalone, but I think it could probably work if you've just seen Thor 3. That would be, I, I'd hazard to guess, you gotta see 3 and then see this. And I think that might be enough, frankly. I completely agree with that on, on all of those accounts. In fact, I think that you, you can almost watch this as a standalone because, you know, the the again the Guardian stuff is a little bit shoved in. But besides that, everybody we've seen stories about, um, you know, people having to deal with a difficult ex. So you get that right. I mean, it's happening on a bigger scale, but you get it. And it doesn't you don't need a whole lot of background to say scary looking guy kidnapping children is the bad guy. We got to get these people together to stop like 
you, you people are going to get on board when they if they see that poster and they say, well, this looks like something I want to watch, and they've never seen a Marvel movie. I gotta believe that they're going to be able to make those couple of jumps. I I find this one particularly well done uh, as a standalone. But yeah, like Alana, I I also am bringing all this baggage to it, so maybe I'm not the best guess. But I think they could watch it like that. Rin twenty five in the comments says, "My mom has seen maybe two MCU movies." None of them with Thor, and she still enjoyed it. You know what? That's a that's a pretty big endorsement. So maybe I'm wrong, folks. What can I say? Really, like I've mentioned before, like really excited to see Guns and Roses used in the soundtrack. Um, one of the things that I really just did not expect, and that I thought was super cool, was like they're using the like dark middle section of November Rain, and just starting with that, and not actually using any of the beginning. Um, and just going right into that and then having the like really fabulous epic solo in it uh, for the children fighting scene. And um, like it's it's lyrically, it's like kind of on the nose, which is like, you know, don't you know that you need someone, you're not the only one. Um, and choosing that for that fight scene rather than just going for like a yeah, kick ass, like major key kind of a song of which they have plenty of to choose from. Um, I, I would have guessed that the, they would have used November Rain like to deal with someone's death or illness because, you know, if you watch the original November Rain music video, you have Stephanie Seymour is dead and we don't know why and Axel is sad. And then actually this completely reinvents how the song relates to the movie in a kind of a fun way. You know, obviously they use two of the biggest Guns N' Roses songs of all time for the rest of it. I I feel like they could have actually soundtracked the whole thing with GNR. I, I could think of ways to use other parts of their repertoire throughout the movie, but um estranged. Where was estranged <laughs> in this movie? Right? Like yeah, yeah. Mary's like the greatest guitar solo slash has ever played. Like would it fit perfectly in like the Jane Thor Jane and Thor flashbacks, right? Like <laughs> or exactly. or maybe for Stormbreaker. Like <laughs> I um but you know we, we did get three whole songs from it and then we have Dio in the in the kicker for the future movie, which was fun. It's amazing that Rainbow in the Dark hasn't happened until now in the Marvel universe. It's like good call. Um, but yeah, I'm curious to hear from folks like, you know, you feel if you feel like the movie has revitalized sort of a broader public interest in this music. And um, I used this as an opportunity to share a playlist that I made uh, that's sort of like the history of metal across time um, in chronological order of songs being released. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm happy. I always want to have, give comics are, and comics adjacent media are a great vector for helping people learn about other culture that they might find interesting um, and I'm glad to see soundtracks being used that way. I don't want rock to be dead because then it will be hard to find more so keep it alive. <laughs> it's not just the songs too. I wonder why Taika chose Guns N' Roses to like focus so many things around in this movie. Kind of an odd choice. I love this band, but you know, Axel himself will tell you that some of his lyrical choices back in the day are questionable, if not unforgivable. And in a movie that is otherwise this kind of wholesome in a lot of ways, you have this band that was notorious for unwholesome behavior and, and the occasional problematic uh, like turn of phrase and, and much more. It also speaks to a bigger trend in the MCU about like ever since Guardians you know, there just seems to be this thing where it's like, let's juxtapose big cosmic action with classic rock hits. And sometimes it works. Like, obviously, it works in Guardians because that's how James Gunn works. And I think it works really well in this movie. Other times you get something really baffling, like that awful Farner song at the end of Eternals, like when Harry Styles shows up, you know? So, like, uh, what are we doing here? Like, where are we going with this? You did make me think of something, which is I think that... People were talking about, you know, using the sort of big airbrushed Frank Frazetta aesthetics, which are stuff that's referenced in a lot of heavy music, um, you know, or even sometimes copied uh, on album art and things like that for this. But it's interesting because Guns N' Roses doesn't actually use that, right? So the whole, like, a lot of the sort of earlier hard rock and metal um, beforehand from like glam metal, people were thinking there was much more sort of the airbrushed, strongman, sword, uh, power metal kind of visuals. And Guns N' Roses was like, 
very much like interest even when they had fantasy sci-fi fantasy art like the rather brutal interior of appetite for destruction it's a lot more it's a lot dirtier and darker um but i think that in the eyes of people who don't like live and breathe this stuff it's all the same to them and it's just rock aesthetics do you know what i mean you know i i might be thinking like oh yeah they should totally do something with angel but like nobody knows who angel is but people do know what guns and roses are and they're great so it's it's a it's a it's a disconnect, but I don't know that it's one that really matters to anybody who isn't just like really in the weeds here. We do need to talk about the two biggest stars in the movie, who are who are Christian Bale and and Natalie Portman, both of whom are fantastic. Like even when I am feeling my least charitable about this movie, these are two terrific performances. Um, we should start with Gore. I think Gore is a good uh, segue after the the power metal talk there. Despite my issues with, you know, the difference between the source material and this movie, I could not have asked for a better Gore than what Christian Bale gave us. Um, And it's nice to see Bale kind of doing something interesting and and also having fun in a role again. How did everybody else feel about the character? You know, Kirstie is an incredibly well-read Marvel Comics fan, but they haven't read the Gore the God Butcher run. So you're kind of new to Gore, Kirsty. What what did you think about this? I deliberately didn't read these. I was going to before the film came out. And um, after the experience I had with Moon Knight, uh, where I've read, you know, pretty much all the Moon Knight comics and I watched that show and I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what my name was. I didn't know what year it was. I I was just absolutely baffled by it. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to read them afterwards. I think that's a good move for me. And um, judging by the disappointment I've heard from people who are big fan of those Jason Aaron comics, especially like the gore, you know, section of them, um, probably a wise choice. I don't know. I found Bale to be great um, and I enjoyed his performance and I thought there was just about enough of him here. I mean, they started the movie off with him in that sequence and I actually, I felt, I found it quite devastating to watch. Um, he really sold it um, and again it, even in that sequence there's this juxtaposition of this this colorful you know golden world full of people that are doing great and then there's these uh, the people that are struggling and uh, are left in the darkness and and that it does seem to be that that creeping darkness trying to um, take over the, the color of the world is something that I think a lot of us are feeling right now and I know um, Joe perhaps thought that the movie didn't quite lean into that as much as it should have all those themes that you know have, um, it, it stuck for me and I enjoyed it I um, I will read the comics now um, but I enjoyed Bale as it was and I enjoyed Gore I especially enjoyed the sequence where he was doing the little puppet show uh, the story time show I thought that was really wild actually I was not expecting that that was quite brutal in front of the kids um yeah some of the kids in my theater were (laughs) shocked you made me think of something though which is like the death in the beginning of the movie the death of gore's daughter that's a climate change death that's literally what that was and like the movie didn't come back to that theme much but that was there like that girl wasn't killed by a supervillain. that girl died of lack of water and food which is a Mm -hmm. thing that we are risking right now and happens all the time which is pretty freaking intense it's also the notion that, you know, he, we were all uh, born in Eden and look what we've done to the world since, right? So imagine what, you know, Gore's mysterious race of aliens had done to that world to get to that point. Um, Kal-El Skywalker in the comments is, uh, that's a great screen name, by the way, is like, is also singing the praises of of that Thor God of Thunder series that introduced Gore. And the opening scene of this movie that is like that's another thing that's straight out of the comic comics and for a minute there i was like wow like this is maybe maybe taika really is gonna like play with our expectations here and i kind of wanted more of that and we we've talked about this before the mcu still has a villain problem like they still do not have villains that truly stick at least not ones that they then immediately rehabilitate and turn into like, you know, cuddly, friendly guys like Loki, you know? Gore is a villain that could have terrorized the MCU for three movies. And that's just something that bums me out. Like you have Christian Bale willing to sink his teeth into a role like this, and they don't really give him the opportunity to do it. But 
every visual related to gore is awesome. I love the necro sword. I love the way all this stuff kind of plays out on screen. I'm just being greedy, I guess. Like, I don't want to criticize, you know, the media that I wish I got. Like, I need to criticize the media that we got. So I'm going to back off. Joe, you've read the comics as well. Is this the gore of your dreams? No, but it's the gore of this movie. And I think he was great. You know, like it's, I still have all those Jason Aaron comics and yeah, I can imagine a world where Christian Bale could play that gore and be awesome. But I loved the gore that he was playing in here and it was totally, totally different. You know, I had the exact same thing where that first scene, I was like, holy crap, I am so invested in this. I am legitimately moved by everything that's happening here. We're going to get that version of gore. And as soon as I got, saw the gore that we were getting and, and kind of reconciled like, okay, this, this is a totally different thing. And honestly, as the movie went on, I didn't want the Jason Aaron gore to become, to be in this movie. I was really happy with, with Bale's performance. I don't remember the last time he's found, I mean, maybe American psycho is the last time he's worked in that specific gear of, um, you know, kind of the, the, the cackling, uh, psychotic supervillain usually pale for me see he really wants you to see how much he's acting and he doesn't feel very light and here he felt really light and genuinely creepy i think he's fantastic fits the movie perfectly and of course the other big star in the movie and like it's so funny that you know chris hemsworth has become a big star but is still nowhere near the marquee level of a of a christian bale or natalie portman and Portman is fantastic in this. I mean, I can't remember the last time I saw Natalie Portman having this much fun in anything, let alone a franchise movie. Like, like she never brought this kind of energy to the to the to the you know to the Star Wars prequels, for example. Never mind the the incredible shape that she got into. But I was really happy with again another longer comic arc that I think could have supported at least one movie on its own. But this was Natalie Portman's kind of ultimate, um, you know, if this was her ultimate farewell to the MCU, it is a a just fantastic redemption for mm-hmm. her and the character. What are everybody else's thoughts on Jane? Yeah, I'm with you. She's so cerebral in so many other other roles that uh, and it was it was a blast to see her having so much fun and so locked in. You know, I was a little bummed that Tessa Thompson didn't get quite as much to do because she's amazing. And I feel like both these movies are underusing her. But Bortman was a blast. And I loved seeing her. I, I, I want to see her. If she's not going to be in the MCU again, I hope she does more of these types of movies and gives us a little bit more of that that gear because she was so much fun. Yeah, I feel like if they brought her back, it would make the death feel cheap in a way that would really undermine the work that she did here. Her performance was great. I'm so glad she had the opportunity to do this, you know? Um, My guest who's gonna come on my podcast to talk about this movie with me is a woman who just went through chemo and cancer. And I'm really curious to hear how she connects to that as a cancer survivor versus someone who like dies. But um, I, I think she enjoyed the movie a lot actually. So. I, I, I found it, and then the performance was wonderful, and I was very happy to see her get total, totally jacked because we deserve that as a people. And also, <laughs> we deserve Martessa Thompson. That really was a, a serious lack in the movie. Kirsty, how about you? No, I thought she, I, I agree with everything you said. I think she was great. I don't really have anything to add to it because I, I was really quite stunned with what she managed to do with the dialogue she had and the moment she had in the movie because so much of what that character was going through was in her eyes um so yeah it, re- it really was quite the performance and i think i think it was um it was finally nice to see jane getting some agency in the mcu and and seeing some layers to her that perhaps she just wasn't really given before and so that was really nice I did enjoy Valkyrie, King Valkyrie in the movie. When she was in the movie, I enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I, I like the little moments, you know, again, they're not quite going far enough with Valkyrie in terms of her sexuality and that I, I just wish they would just stop sort of teasing it. There, there were little moments that they gave us uh, when she said, you know, basically that she was also into Jane. She was just like, we're both team Jane, right? Both team Jane. <laughs> yeah. And, and there was, she kissed one of Zeus's handmaiden's hands, but it's just, just do it. 
you know it just it, it does get frustrating and um i don't know whether tessa thompson is as frustrated with it as we are but she Probably. Um, yeah yeah it's, it's not just not quite enough I think we're all kind of in agreement here. Even, you know, even Kirsty, even, even the love and thunder booster, you know, <laughs> Valkyrie being a little underserved in this movie is just another symptom of this movie having two movies worth of story crammed into a surprisingly economical for the MCU two hour runtime, you know, um, which is something I would normally welcome. But, you know, it's like everybody gets shortchanged just a little bit out of that mm. this time around. Uh, we asked our audience, was it worth it bringing back Natalie Portman, Natalie Portman as Mighty Thor? 18% of you said, nah, what does it matter with you? Like, what, <laughs> what, what movie did you watch? Like, well, go, go, go watch a Zack Snyder movie. I, I don't have time for these 18%. Uh, yes, 44%, of course. She was okay, 16%. All right, fine, I'll accept that. Yes, we needed more closure, 21%. Yeah, I think that's fair, and I think she got it. I, should, I shouldn't have baited the, the fans of, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the most highest uh, you-know-who. Uh, <laughs> what do you think of Christian Bale as Gore in Thor Love and Thunder? 4.6% of our audience hated his performance. That is too strong. 12% said he was mediocre. I mean, look, I can understand if you liked the comics a lot and you weren't in favor of this, blah, blah, blah. But, 30, but the vast majority of our audience was into him. 36% said he was solid. 46% said he was great. Um, it's a weird one. There's a wide range of opinions on this movie, and it's understandable why. And then, of course, um, you know, there's the, there's the stuff with the, with, the, with the Greek pantheon, which we got with Zeus in the body of the movie and Russell Crowe just chewing scenery and uh, the introduction of Brett Goldstein as Hercules at the end. Um, this is a potentially big deal for the MCU. I mean, it sounds like we'll see Zeus again. Um, Russell Crowe seemed to be having the time of his life, as he often does when given the opportunity to do this kind of stuff. Anybody have any, any thoughts on, on those scenes in particular? I'm just remembering before this came out when we were talking about Russell Crowe as Zeus, where we were like, yeah, whatever, he's going to be in it for a minute, it's going to be fine, and then he'll die, and then we'll never see him again. Um, and that didn't happen. There was actually it's had quite a lot of screen time in this, and then wasn't, you know, dead dead at the end. He was just <laughs> wounded, right? So, yeah, yeah he's, he's almost certainly could come back, and I'd love to see him. He was so over the top here and i think the role demanded over the top um i still think about his little tutu walk down the <laughs> steps to talk to thor i was thinking about that after i left the cinema uh, quite a few times <laughs> yeah i really enjoyed his just ridiculous performances and yeah good times and it did set up i mean that is probably the most consequential post credit scene we've had in the MCU in quite some time. Um, you know, like a lot of these in phase four have felt particularly lightweight to me. Um, but the fact that Zeus is still around, that we'll see Russell Crowe again, that Zeus wants revenge and he's, he's unleashing Hercules on the world is a, is a pretty big deal. You know, Ilana brought up earlier the fact that Hercules is canonically bisexual in the comics and in mythology. Correct me if I'm wrong, that element of his character was introduced in the Incredible Hercules series eight years ago, 10 I years think ago? So. Is I think that was relatively recent. Like, yes, of course. And there was like a, um, it seems like Marvel editorial, unsurprisingly, then back, he like backed away from it. And it, the last time I can see it really fully embraced was in um, Ali Ewing's uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, where He's openly dating Marvel Boy, and it's a great run. So hopefully we'll get more of that. Yeah, and I, I do encourage everybody to check out the Incredible Hercules series that uh, Greg Pak wrote, which is awesome. Uh, like, it's really, really good. And it's spun out of uh, the World War Hulk comic. So it's funny, like, kind of thematically, since Ragnarok nodded to World War Hulk, it makes sense that, uh, that this movie ends up introducing Hercules. But that series is a lot of fun. And the, the weird thing for me, though, is that MCU Thor <laughs> is basically comics Hercules. Like, Joe wrote a whole article about this on denegeek.com slash Marvel. Go check it out. Um, so I'm curious now, what is that going to mean for MCU Hercules? 
<laughs> well, they got Brett Goldstein in there, who is really good at making a humor, uh, ringing humor out of a relatively humorless character. Like I could, if we're gonna give um, Thor in the movies Hercules's personality, then I'm all for you know growling, serious. I have no time for these shenanigans. Version of Hercules if he's gonna be played by Brett Goldstein. Yeah, I just presume that Brett's spin on Hercules is going to be a little Roy Kentish. Uh, so, and for me, I can see that working. I like. Uh, Mike, have you watched Ted Lasso at all? Do you? Ah, okay. Ooh. So maybe after you've watched a little bit, you'll see how that, how they're uh, viewing those two pairing off against each other. But yeah, I can see it working. Kyle Skywalker points out that we need Beta Ray Bill. He's long overdue and. When they first cast Christian Bale, I was like, he's Beta Ray Bill. He has to be voicing Beta Ray Bill. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm I'm really surprised. If there is ever a character that is just, like, like crying out for a Taika, Taika Waititi take, it's Beta Ray Bill. I was expecting Korg to be him, like, in the other movie, like, versus, you know what I mean? Like, that, I, would, I thought that that would have been the moment to introduce him there. I agree. I totally agree. So, look, I'm I'm still on board, despite the fact that I'm a little bit mixed about this movie. I, I hope Taika gets to make a third film. I feel like there's probably an arc that he wants to close with a trilogy. So I'm real curious to see what's up. Uh, almost everybody's favorite joke in the movie, I think, is the goat boat. But that also <laughs> opens up some questions about you know the 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 quality of the CGI, which is kind of um, kind of inconsistent across the MCU in general. And there was some stuff raised on Reddit uh, this weekend about the MCU's uh, VFX practices across the board. Joe, you wrote, uh, you just wrote an article that's about to hit denigeek.com slash Marvel later today. Uh, do you want to take us through some of this? Yeah, so like you said, it initially came out of a Reddit thread. So the, none of these artists, we don't know specifically which names they are. Um, but I, I believe the first one that kind of sprung it out was one from a couple of days ago where uh, somebody posting on r slash VFX, so a subreddit for visual effects artists, they, they were mentioning that they were disappointed that they didn't get take a job with an effects house that d does a lot of Marvel stuff. And that prompted some responses from other professionals who were talking about how awful it is to work on Marvel projects, that they have they have unrealistic expectations, that they don't pay their 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 artists well, they have demands for overtime. From that, a couple of articles have sprung out. And a uh, this one, we do have a name on Twitter, former VFX artist named Dhruv Gavel. Working on Marvel shows is what pushed me to leave the VFX industry. They're a horrible client, and I've seen way too many colleagues break down after being overworked. Well, Marvin, Marvel tightens the purse strings. So as much as, and I'm, I've been there too, as much as we complain about the visual effects, in Marvel movies, we, we need to remember that this is not the fault of the artists who probably, if they were given support and time and recognition, could make these movies look like what we want them to look like. It sounds like the MCU is following the long-standing Marvel tradition of screwing over their artists. So for folks who don't know, Ilana and I met because we met through the Jack Kirby Museum, which, I am, uh, which I'm a trustee of. And so the two of us have spoken at length about the shoddy treatment of Marvel creators through the years. Um, so yeah, it's like it, it's like this is the the Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko VFX houses, uh, you know, doing doing work for thankless work for hire stuff while other people get all the credit. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> um, we should start wrapping them up. Uh, but any questions from the audience? Oh, Kalel wants to know. Do you think they are leading into secret wars? And you know what? Yes, I think they do. I think they are. Um, particularly the John Hickman version of secret wars. Um, what, what does everybody else think? You know what? After the, I'm going to switch franchises here, but after people in, freaked out on Star Trek when Cybok was mentioned, people are going to freak out when the Beyonder is mentioned. I know we all think he's ridiculous and dumb and his leisure suit, but as soon as somebody makes a reference to the Beyonder, people are going to go nuts. So 
I'm excited for that version to show up too. Kalos Skywalker, once again, I think Doom is coming. Doom had better be coming. Mm. Um, I hope you saw, saw our episode a couple weeks ago where we talked at length about uh, Doctor Doom in the MCU. And with any luck, who knows, maybe at uh, San Diego Comic-Con in a few weeks or at D23 the month after, uh, maybe we're going to get a Doom casting. I mean, it would make sense if they're, if they're hell-bent on doing Secret Wars as a thing that Phase 5 leads into. I think that is kind of uh, like we have to see Doom before then. One thing I, I hope that comes out of um, Marvel's reveals that are coming up is less. And I know that's not going to happen, <laughs> but I would love to see them say, you know, these and these shows, but less because it does feel like these VFX artists are working in crunch conditions. Yeah. It, and uh, you know it's it's not good as much no. as i love these things i i don't want people to suffer no. making them and so i think if you're looking at like well we have to keep churning these things out then no you need to really start focusing now and just giving people a break i mean i think one of those vfx artists was saying that it took it took him six months to recover from the WandaVision crunch. That was during the pandemic. You know, that was during some bad times, man. Um, as, yeah, like I said, as much as I love these things, it's not worth it. And um, I just like to see a little bit more care, attention and focus going forward. So that's what I'm hoping from this, from these announcements coming up. What's the one thing everybody wants to see in Thor 5? more um valkyrie yes <laughs> yep yeah i'm into that a different director oh wow really? sorry <laughs> sorry it's time it huh yell at me online you, you've got my twitter handle there that's korg i felt like there was a bit too much taika in my ear and on screen as well as directing this movie there's just when he was doing that hey ninny nonny song or whatever from his i was like this is valuable time like we could be spending with these characters and what are we doing i don't know it was um yeah there was just a bit too much korg in this for me and um yeah maybe we could bring a little bit more drama into the next one and not as much comedy as much as i enjoyed this I'm going to once again agree with our new friend in the comments, Kyle Skywalker. They want Beta Ray Bill, and I want Beta Ray Bill, so I can get behind that. Uh, Lee wants a slightly more serious tone for the Thor versus Hercules fight. I can get behind that. Uh, and Nagma says, more goats. All right, I'm here, I'm here for more goats as well. Uh, <laughs> but I think that's it for this week's Marvel Standom, folks. I just want to thank you all once again. Ilana, why don't you remind everybody everything, all the cool stuff you've got going on and where they can find you. Okay, um, Graphic Policy Radio is my podcast. It's on any podcast platform. That's Graphic Policy Radio. We will be covering Thor 4 very shortly. Ms. Marvel, I'm taping this week, our Ms. Marvel coverage. Um, and we're, I'll have my Young Justice season four episode up by the time you're looking at this for sure. And I'm on Twitter at E-L-A-N-A -A underscore Brooklyn. And I wrote a great piece for you guys at Den of Geek. Folks can check out there about our flag means death. Hopefully the first of many. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Joe, you got to put up with me just about every day, but we're <laughs> always happy to have you on the show. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm happy to put up with you. <laughs> Everybody go read Joe's stuff on denofgeek.com, please. He's an absolute brilliant writer and we're lucky to have him. But I think that's it for this week's Marvel Standom, but we will be back sooner than you think or probably want because there's two episodes this week we'll be back on wednesday july 13th for our ms marvel season finale episode so don't miss out make sure you're subscribing to us wherever you're watching or listening right now subscriptions are good don't forget to check out our web home we're at dennygeek.com you can find all our marvel coverage at dennygeek.com marvel please Drop us a line. Let us know your burning questions. Let us know what you want us to cover in upcoming episodes. We are at Marvel Standom on Twitter and Instagram. Give them a follow. We'll have some surprises there too. That's where we put our polls. You want to make your voice heard? That's the place to do it. Don't forget, we also have a DC show. So check out DC Standom where you can on all major podcast platforms. Now, don't forget if you came in late, 
you'll be able to watch this entire episode on denofgeek.com or at our YouTube home, Den of Geek US. Don't forget to check out past episodes there too. And also, you know the drill, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you once again to our special guest this week. It's great, great seeing you all. Thanks to Andrew Halley, the best producer in any corner of the multiverse. Thanks to Denny Geek Social Media Coordinator Lee Parham for keeping everybody in line today. You were on your best behavior too, Lee. I'm impressed. Go follow our TikTok. We are at Denny Geek TV. Lee is doing really great work over there. Special shout out to Michael R. He's our podcast producer and he makes the podcast version of this show all it can be. But most of all, Thank you all for watching, listening, following, subscribing. You know the drill. Until next time, folks, remember, we stand together.